we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We are up to episode 95. It's the 10th of May, 2017, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am the Iron Fist. With me is Scott, the Velvet Glove. Scott. G'day, Trevor. How are you? I'm going very well. You're looking well. Um, oh, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Mm, you're busy at the moment, rounding up secular party members. Yes, we are. Mm. We are rounding up secular party members. If we do have any members that have received their email from head office and ignored it, can you please not ignore it? Can you get onto that, please? Mm. So, dear listener, yeah. uh, every once in a while, which seems quite regularly, the Electoral Commission checks that the parties have enough members and... Secular Party has to provide a list of 500 members. So if you are a member, read your emails. If you're not a member, think about becoming one now. So um, help them out. Right. Mm. Scott, we've just uh, had a budget from our friend ScoMo. Yes. <laughs> and I asked you before we started whether there was anything that jumped out at you, and your response was? No, it's fair. Um, <laughs> it's probably... The budget was... The, the budget was um... It was brought down, it was fair, and I think it was um, designed with neutralising Labor's attacks in mind Mm. more than anything else, because it has um, taken apart every attack that the Labor Party has had to, has landed on the the coalition government. And it's it's done it in one budget. It's... uh, you know, the only thing people can complain about, and even this, I'd be, you know, I, I wouldn't even take it as a serious complaint, is the increase in the Medicare levy. It is across the entire income spectrum. You know, there was uh, this afternoon I was listening to Fran Kelly and Patricia Carvelis, their podcast, and they said that uh, one of the things that could be used against the government is that you are removing the uh, higher income tax levy on um, for budget repair, uh-huh. and you're replacing it with a 0.5% increase in the Medicare levy across all income levels. It could be argued that that's unfair. I don't think it is. Um, I also, at the time, thought to myself when they introduced the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, that uh, you don't get an insurance policy and don't pay a premium. So as far as I'm concerned, this is just a premium Mm. for that insurance scheme, and it is long overdue. So I don't have a problem with anything that was in the budget. Um, You know, the, the measures that were announced to enable people to save more easily for their first home and that sort of stuff they were not um, as draconian as originally thought you weren't going to be able to withdraw money from super you had to put it in there first and then you could get it out Mm -hmm. i I don't think that's bad at all you know it's um i'm okay with that it's a good yeah i'm okay with that yeah you know because you've got to put the money in before you can take it out so Mm. if anything it could actually get people in the cabinet of salary sacrificing at at least it's not robbing the superannuation system in the short term and leaving us with a long-term problem so Mm. uh so i'm okay with that um the only uh, thing i've got to say scott is you know in the lead up to the budget we've had the federal education minister flagging that they're going to start 
actually taking money off elite private schools. Yes. And yeah. oh, great, yeah. fantastic. Great, yeah, exactly. But yeah. what I cannot believe is the Labor Party reaction. Yeah, it's absolutely chronically they, criminal that they have done this. Instead of you applauding know. and saying, good idea, the Labor yeah. Party is saying, oh, poor private schools, how can you do this to them? I don't yeah, understand. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're crying crocodile tears over this. They are complaining that um, Catholic schools are going to have to increase their fees and all that sort of stuff. Okay, if we, if we take it apart, you've got, I think it's 34 schools are going to have their funding actually cut. Mm. Not completely, but it's going to be cut. Then you've got probably a couple of hundred schools under that level that are going to still get increases, but the, in, the rate of the increase is going to be lower than other schools. I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, I would even argue that you could go even further than that, that you could start cutting even more than the 34 that have actually been targeted for cuts. Of course you could. Yeah, you could. And a Labor <laughs> government worth its... Well, a Labor party worth its salt would be demanding that and to exactly. actually be objecting yeah. to the small cuts, mm. the small number of cuts. I cannot... they bereft of... They're, they're a Labor party in name only and... Just to remind people of what has been said uh, from a John Menadou article we mentioned previously when Simon Birmingham highlighted under f- overfunding of private schools, Tanya Plibersek um, called on Birmingham to name the schools that would lose funding. She refused to condemn overfunding of private schools And in December, she said, there is no case to cut funding of overfunded elite private schools and redistribute the money to disadvantaged schools. This is a Labor opposition education spokesperson. spokesperson. And Bill Shorten has said on the record, going after non-government schools um, and called on the government to reassure non-government schools they are not about to get hit in the back of the head with a funding cut. It's appalling that the Labor government is doing that. I can't believe it. They're just... And, you know, it, it's, it's really worrying when you find yourself agreeing with the Greens. Mm. But I agreed with them, you know. And um, oh, the, um, I can't think what her name is. The, this, the education spokesman, spokesperson from the Greens. No, I've lost her. Mm. She's from South Australia. Mm. Yeah, you know, the one I'm talking about. Okay. You know... Oh, the only green I know is Larissa Waters or whatever. It's not her. Okay. Right. That's the only one I know. No, um, but Scott, this is an example yeah. of the grassroots versus lobbying um, theory that I put forward and the sort of, does change come from the bottom or from the top? So uh, imagine the Liberal Party membership exactly the same, except Tony Abbott as leader. Would this mm. change to elite private school funding have happened? No. No, it wouldn't. It's just because we happen to have Turnbull in power and he is very, very good friends with Gonski. So Mm. he's implementing one of his mate's, you know, ideas, which is great. But it just, Mm. you know, none of this was part of policy that's been argued at the grassroots level. This was just the top saying, well, I've decided to do this and everyone will fall into line. Classic Mm. example. 
Mm. Yeah, and you know you've got the ALP arguing that the uh, the rate of increase is going to be lower under the coalition government. Well, of course it is because you're going to you are going to be paring back the funding growth for a, a large number of private schools. Mm. I don't have a problem with it. You know, it's mm. dear listener, it's, it's overdue. Mm. When you're discussing this around the water cooler, dear listener, with your friends and perhaps putting forward the iron fist view that there should be even further cuts, and people say, "Oh, you can't do that." <laughs> Suggest to uh, the protagonist that, well, maybe if we just, you know, return to the way things were in the good good old days, how would that be? And if they agree with you, say, great, because prior to 1960, the federal government didn't give any money to private Mm. schools. And it was only in the, at the end of the uh, Menzies era that it actually came about. So from 1870 to 1962... There was no funding of private schools at all. And, in fact, uh, it all came about, you know, uh, because of a a nun in a Catholic school at Goulburn who had a dodgy toilet block and the authorities wanted to close her down. And she, uh, she not only closed her school but six others, which caused an immediate crisis. And that's what eventually helped trigger this whole mess we're in now. So, Scott... When we talk about miracles in the Catholic Church and, you know, Mother Teresa and Mary MacKillop and that, here's a miracle. Mother Celestine of the Sisters of Mercy back in 1960, she pulled off a miracle. She turned a toilet block into a gold mine, in my opinion, mm. single-handedly. If they're, you know, if they're creating saints in the Catholic Church, she should be at the top of their list. Exactly. Mm. You know, and then you, you come down on this Guardian article down the bottom there. It says the cost saving argument has always been overstated, but has well and truly passed its use by date. If the Goulburn scenario was repeated today, now the Goulburn scenario was what you were just referring to. Mm. That's when they closed the schools and everyone had to go and file into the government schools. Mm. If, the, if the Goulburn scenario was repeated today, it would now cost only 1% more to educate all of Goulburn's Catholic school students in government schools. Ah. If economies of scale were factored in, it would cost even less. Almost certainly governments would end up ahead. Oh, that's good. You know, and so that is, that's, it's put the kibosh on it. And that was one of the arguments I always stuck to. I thought to myself, well, you don't want to, you don't want to rip all the money out of private schools and that sort of stuff because you'd end up having to educate everyone in government schools and government schools are dearer per blah, blah, blah. But it's not the case, Mm. you know, it's, it's been pulled apart there and said that it's only going to cost an extra 1%. So there you go, dear listeners. You're fully armed now. If you do happen to have an argument around the water cooler and you have some success with our arguments, please give us some feedback and let us know. We'd, <laughs> we'd love to hear. Um, on that score, uh, Scott, we have now a new voicemail system. If people go onto the website, uh, you'll see in the uh, little side menu um, an ability to click on a voicemail link and you can leave us a 25-second message of some sort. So Is that right? if you have some success like that, or a story to tell, um, leave us a voicemail and we'll play it on the podcast and we'll talk about it. So, yeah, um, absolutely. So, please do that uh, while I'm here. The other thing, Scott, is um, we refer people to different books at different times that we talk about. Um, and now there's also a link uh, in a book section to the book depository. So, if people 
like one of the books we're talking about and buy it through that link, then we get a little kickback on the side. Five, <laughs> five, 5% actually. There you go. Is that so, right? So that's in place now as well, dear listener. So when we talk about books and we um, and you like the sound of it, uh, if you go through our website and order it, it doesn't cost you any more through Book Depository, but they send us a bit of commission. So that's nice. Okay. Um, Scott, Stephen Fry had a famous interview um, where he was asked, you know, what would he say if he turned up uh, at the pearly gates and... It was infamous before and it's become even more infamous in recent times. So what I'm going to do is play a bit of the audio from that now for anybody who may Mm -hmm. not have heard it before. Suppose it's all true Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? I will basically, that is the odyssey, I think, I'll say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it it was Pluto, Hades... And if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Right, so there you go. And that was a famous piece of footage, and it's become even more famous now because the Republic of Ireland launched an investigation uh, as to whether he should be prosecuted for blasphemy. And this seriously, the police force actually uh, undertook this exercise, Scott. (laughs) <laughs> it beggars belief, doesn't it? Because you think of Ireland and you think that they're civilised, modern country. Mm. And yet they've still got blasphemy on the books. You know, it's it's absolutely insane. And, and despite, you know, the strength of history with the Catholic Church, they brought in marriage equality as well. And they mm-hmm. really seem to have made great progress. And... Uh, Perhaps not in the police force or the investigating bureau that they would actually commence well, something was, like that. It was it, they had to commence it because there was compli- there was a complaint from the public. Hmm. Now, as a little, uh, oh, I can end this story, yeah, can't sure. I? Sure. Uh, uh, today it was well. Today it was announced that the uh, the prosecution's not proceeding forward because. Quote, they did not get enough people to express their outrage. So they only had one person expressing outrage and complaining about blasphemy, and they needed more than that. So the Republic of Ireland has dropped the case, uh, which means Stephen Fry will probably say something on the matter now. It's pretty pretty tricky in this day and age of social media media 
to not have enough outrage about anything. I mean, you, you, generating outrage is so easy. It's amazing. Well, it is, yeah. yeah. So that goes to show what a non-event it was. But uh, mm. really good stuff by Fry there, where he uh, where he really gives it to the so-called um, Abrahamic God that um, people often think about. Really good stuff from him. Mm. Not such good news for our friend, the Governor Ahok in Indonesia, Scott. No, that wasn't good news at all, was it? No. He's been sentenced to two years in prison for blasphemy. Yes. Uh, which, you know, we can sit here and say how ridiculous blasphemy laws are and that sort of stuff. However, in that country, they do have blasphemy laws. And you only had to look at what he had said... Not the misinterpreted or misreported uh, reports of what he said, but actually what he said. Yes. And I don't think he was blasphemous. No, he wasn't. You know, but clearly the uh, courts in Jakarta appear to be kowtowing to religious fundamentalists and they have sentenced him to two years prison, which is very distressing. And I would be interested to hear. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear from your mate, actually, who lives in in Indonesia. <laughs> yes, yes. It's ironic that virtually at the same time, Stephen Fry, who definitely did commit blasphemy yes. in Ireland, <laughs> the thing was dropped. Meanwhile, almost simultaneously, Ahok, who did not commit blasphemy in Indonesia, was in fact. Found guilty and given two years. Mm. What a disaster. And um, I mean, in this article that we've linked to, a uh, quote from this guy from Human Rights Watch, if someone like Ahok, the governor of the capital, backed by the country's largest political party, ally of the president, can be jailed on groundless accusations, what will others do? Mm. Uh, it used to be held up as an example of democracy and Islam working wonderfully together. But I think this incident has put the kibosh on that. It certainly looks that way. You know, it, um, mm-hmm. it appears that the extremist groups over there have got more clout than they once had. Mm. And that's a worry because of the proximity they are to our country. Anyway. Mm. 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 Uh, Scott, um, Prince Philip... Or, or sh- is, this, is this how we should be refer- should we be referring to him as Sir Prince Philip? I mean, <laughs> Tony Abbott did knight him, so really, I mean, should we be saying Sir Prince Philip? I don't know. It's Prince Sir Philip. I don't, couldn't tell you. Well, dear listener, you know, everyone was on tenterhooks because the the palace had got all staff to come in for an important announcement. So everyone off duty, into the palace, gather round, folks, something very important to tell you. Everybody's thinking, well, somebody's just died. Mm. But no, a simple announcement that Prince Philip was going to stop his princely duties and basically retire from public office. Just... Can you believe how out of touch these people are to haul people in for such a pathetic announcement? It's something that could have been handled by an email. <laughs> you would have thought so. 
or just you know slap a notice on the bulletin board exactly. people when they when they clock in in the morning yeah. and done the trick <sighs> so um article here from the guardian titled we can't blame prince philip we were the ones who indulged him uh it says prince philip has become a perfect example of how the royal family can reduce millions of people to a state of unquestioning idiocy uh, if he were playing Mr. Philip Windsor, he would be seen as a tiresome old toff with some drearily old-fashioned prejudices. Uh, an older, snobbier virgin, version of Nigel Farage, but, but without the roguish charm. I like that. <laughs> um, some of his quotes. Uh, to a child who said he wanted to be an astronaut, Philip said, You look like you could lose some weight. <laughs> And to a woman solicitor, he said, I thought it was against the law to solicit. There's a whole bunch of them. He's just... <sighs> Phil the Greek, he's never been um, wildly popular, except with Tony Abbott, it seems. And uh, he says goodbye to public life. Cheddar tear there, Scott. I'll try not to look too sad. Well, you know, I mean, I won't be shedding a tear. It's, uh, it is what it is. He's retiring from public life. Big deal, you know. Mm. He'll mm. probably sit around the palace in a wheelchair and then one day we'll get notice that he's dead. So Yes. Mm. Yes. Look, you know, just send us an email. We don't need to be there. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Dear listener, not too long ago you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Uh, Korea, there's a bit of sabre rattling happening uh, with North Korea, Scott. And it is, yeah. And interesting to see how much rattling continues. Yeah, and I had no idea how many bombs that the North actually had. Yeah. They've got a lot. Mm. And more importantly, they've got nuclear weapons. Well, that's what I mean. They've, they've got nuclear mm. weapons is what, what's oh, actually okay. listed there. Yeah. It, okay, yeah. And they've got a lot of uh, just ordinary, everyday bombs as well. Oh, exactly. That uh, fire you know, on and, and that is one of the problems. I mean, like I was talking to the better half about this, and if they, if they do decide to take him out, they've got to have one or two things. They've got to have the Chinese agreeing to sit on the sidelines and not get involved. And the other thing is they've got to get over and take over the demilitarised zone very, very quickly because the artillery is well within range of Seoul. And they can rain a hell of a lot of hell down on Seoul. Mm. Mm. They can't do it quick enough. So if it wasn't for Donald Trump, you would say it's just impossible to think that they would do anything on North Korea. And um, but with Donald, you never know. But the, the key difference is, uh, this is an article I'm reading from, again, John Menadou. And... Um, uh, the North Koreans are fully aware of the advantage that they have because of and Saddam, Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Gaddafi in Libya had had nuclear weapons. Their countries would not have been at the mercy of the Americans and their regime changed tactics. I think that's true, Scott. If, if those three examples had nuclear weapons, then 
Mm. So there's a lesson there for all minor countries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Perhaps us included. You never know. The Americans, the Americans have invaded them. Fiddling about in countries all over the world. So it's a good tactic by North Korea. It's, it's playing the, the ultimate trump card. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know. I'm not exactly certain how I feel about it. I mean, you clearly don't want um, you don't want the the planet just to go out there and proliferate nuclear weapons. But the examples the North Koreans have actually brought up are legitimate examples. You know, if mm. if countries had nuclear arms, they would be less likely to be invaded by the United States. Mm. You can't blame them for for doing it and no exactly and the way the u.s behaves you can't blame other countries for thinking about it mm, exactly yeah. scott article here from catholic news bishops yeah. calling for action on euthanasia uh the bishops comprising melbourne's archbishop dennis hart bishop of ballarat paul bird bishop of sale patrick o'regan and bishop of sandhurst les tomlinson have reminded Catholics of Pope Francis's comments on the false compassion presented by supporters of euthanasia. Uh, they've said the predominant school of thought sometimes leads to a false compassion, which holds that it is an act of dignity to perform euthanasia, Francis said. Instead, the compassion of the gospel is what accompanies us in times of need, that compassion of the good Samaritan who sees, has compassion, draws near and provides concrete help. Look, I'd rather a bit of compassion in the form of a lethal injection, thanks, rather than the compassion of, of, the, compassion of the good Samaritan of the gospel. Well, I think if I, was, um, if I was dying and that sort of stuff, and if I had cancer, I think that um, I'd give chemo a go. But if it didn't work, I'd be lining up for the injection. Yeah. Mm. The letter states bluntly that euthanasia and assisted suicide are the opposite of care and represent the abandonment of the sick and the suffering of older and dying persons. Um, called upon Catholics not only to pray, but also to act, encouraging individuals, lay groups, associations, parishes and priests to step up their efforts in opposing euthanasia. We should be clear, there is no safe way to kill people or to help them to, to help them to their own suicide. So there you go, the forces of Catholicism lining up against euthanasia. Which, <coughs> I mean, I suppose we shouldn't be um, surprised by this. No. But it really is ridiculous. I mean, you read the words there and you think to yourself, these guys are mad. They're barking mm. mad. Mm. You know, you don't allow a dog to suffer. You know, you, you take your dog and you put them down. Mm. Mm. Anyway. Scott, I didn't tell you about this one, but, um, but uh, Liberty Victoria is a group and they have what they call the Voltaire Award. Yeah. Uh, the award honours a personal group for an outstanding contribution to free speech in the past year. It celebrates those who speak out, write, campaign, expose through whistleblowing or stand against authoritarianism. Okay, so, and uh, you know, and Voltaire is infamous, f well, the quote is, uh, whether it's a, tr 
misattributed to him or whether he actually said it is all a bit of conjecture, but it's the one where I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend, defend to the death. To your right to say it. That's, yeah. that's the sort of... If you're going to call an award a Voltaire award, that's the spirit that you're invoking yeah. in it, for sure. Mm. Whether Voltaire actually said those words or not, you know. I mm. don't like what you're saying, but I'll defend your right to say it. Yeah. Who, Scott, could you think of who would be the most ironic choice for the Voltaire Award? Pauline Hanson? Somebody who perhaps promotes and advocates for Section 18C, like Gillian Triggs. Gillian Triggs, yeah. (laughs) The Voltaire Award. This is the woman who complained that you can say what you like around the kitchen table, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. And upholds Section 18C as being necessary. This is a woman who is actually restricting free speech, and she has won the Voltaire Award. Did she win it ironically or not? Apparently in all seriousness. There you go. Bloody hell. Just uh, the people in charge of that award have no idea of what they're yeah, doing. Apparently quite, not. Frankly, it's the world coming to Scott. Uh, with my uh, my theory about lobbying as opposed to grassroots. Sorry to return to it again. We had a bit mm. of feedback from one of our regular listeners and and uh, yeah, well regular feedback offerers as well. This is from Matt, who, now that he knows about the voicemail, next time, Matt, you've got an idea like this, you could just record it on voicemail and we'd play it. Yeah, exactly. He wrote to us and he said, uh, initial paragraph, enjoying the podcast, etc. And then, um, uh, I think lobbying is the answer and agree that an engaging media spokesperson is needed. Radical Islamists are quite savvy and a step ahead of we secularists, atheists and humanists. In Australia, they realise that most people's stereotype of a Muslim is a bearded man of Middle Eastern origin who spews forth hate and intolerance and represses women. The PR answer? Pick a young, educated woman who wears a colourful headpiece, big hipster glasses and a shit-eating grin. What could be less threatening? (laughs) They created a Trojan horse. Matt, I don't think they actually quite thought her up she just appeared and they said fantastic i think is i don't think they're that smart i hope they're not but you, you um, maybe you're right yeah i hope they're not but they may be you know could be but, uh, yeah. but yeah but there's a description i like that good on you matt ah mm. uh, scott um the new york times no longer uses the expression female genital mutilation. And the reason, dear listener, is that they think that that phrase is culturally loaded and they prefer the expression... um, Where is it here? Cutting. um, Rather than mutilation. Um, Person speaking on behalf of the New York Times says... There's a gulf between the Western and some African advocates who campaign against the practice and the people who follow the right. 
I felt that the term mutilation widened that chasm, she wrote. So they want to use the word cutting instead of mutilation. I would have thought it's mutilation and it's such an ugly thing. Why would we try in any way to sanitise a disgusting practice? Exactly. It really should be... um it really should be maintained in its original form, female genital mutilation. There's no other way to describe it. And it is exactly that. It is mutilation. It's, and the term cutting, it, it sanitises it. It, it, it um, mm. tries and reduces the, the, the pain and the agony that goes into it. Mm. There we go. Political correctness gone mad again. Still in America, uh, different states have passed all sorts of um, legislation to make it extremely difficult for women to, um, to get abortions and to get contraception where they have to sign forms, wait three days, agree to be uh, assessed by um, medicos and uh, sim- what should be a simple matter of going to your doctor and getting a script uh, or going to a doctor and having a procedure becomes unbelievably difficult for women in America. And uh, one of the uh, women legislators in in Texas, of all places, Jessica Farrar, um, she has decided she's had enough and she's um, created some legislation that she's put forward to... Uh, uh, to go through the process there, which is kind of the male equivalent, as she would put it, of what women have to go through for their uh, in their circumstance. So the, um, the headline of this article, dear listener, by the Houston Chronicle, perhaps sums up what's going to follow. Uh, language warning, if there's any kiddies, turn it down. <laughs> this article is definitely not kiddie-friendly. Okay, you've got that down, good. Um, by the Houston Chronicle, headline article. headline of the article is Texas Masturbation Bill is now in the hands of the Texas State Affairs. <laughs> <laughs> this is a genuine newspaper article. Uh, this is the committee that typically hears abortion-related legislation and they're now going to have to address Bill 4620, uh, named the Men's Right to Know Act. The bill contains provisions that would put restrictions on masturbation, vasectomies, Viagra prescriptions and colonoscopies, including a state must create a booklet called A Man's Right to Know that contains information of risks and the mayor must review the booklet before getting the procedure. Uh, The man can only get treatment after waiting 24 hours. Uh, He'll be fined $100 for unregulated masturbatory emissions and he must receive a rectal exam and an MRI of his rectum before receiving treatments. A man cannot sue his doctor for refusing to provide the treatment if he has a uh, religious uh, objection. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. You get the picture? That is a serious piece of legislation that Texas State Affairs Committee is considering. And I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. It's really proves it, 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 it proves a very it proves a very good point in that it um, 
it really is high time that men are faced with some of the objections that women have to put up with on a daily basis. Mm. You know, a woman going in to get an abortion is subjected to all sorts of nonsense you know, she's supposed to have an MR. She's supposed to have a, um, a CAT scan and that sort of stuff of her, of her of her child, and that sort of thing to try and turn her off. I think it's a I think it's a damn good move. You know, so some people are just incapable of viewing things from another person's position. And exactly. Yeah. That's why the Satanic Temple uh, scores a few points because they say, well, you know, you want all these rights as a religion, okay. How about our religion of, you know, Satan worship as such? How do you feel about that? And it's not that I think it changes many opinions, but at least it makes the point to some people who just can't see beyond their own self as to what the things look like from another person's point of view. So good on you to that Texas Texas legislature. Hopefully we'll never reach a situation in Australia where such a ridiculous piece of legislation has to be put forward to prove a point. Well, I mean, it's it's clearly just been put put forward to prove that point, but it is a mm. it is a point that's worth making. Ah, mm. mm. uh, Scott, um, another article sent by friend of the show Zach. Uh, this one: a polygamy trial in Canada tests the limits of conjugal freedom. Um, many of today's hottest arguments about religious freedom involve idiosyncratic micro-communities which impose on themselves and their children norms of life which the rest of society find bizarre or worse. And we have this polygamy trial in Canada with a religious community called Bountiful and two guys called Blackmore and Olair who have been charged with polygamy. Uh, Bountiful is an offshoot of the Mormon church. Um, Blackmore has been uh, ceremonious, ceremonially married to 24 women and he has 145 children. <sighs> Supreme Court of British Columbia issued a landmark decision saying that uh, although anti-polygamy legislation does indeed impinge on religious freedom, it is necessary in view of the harm which multiple marriages cause to children, women and society. And Blackmore's lawyer says, because of Blackmore's religious belief, because he has more than one relationship, he's being prosecuted. If he didn't have a religious ceremony and he just had all these children with different women, it would be fine. The sole distinction is that Blackmore went and had ceremonies for each one. So it's a clever argument. I think, what the lawyer's saying. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a very clever argument that the lawyer's come up with, but that's the law. You can't go and have marriages, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, the solution, Scott, is your solution, that, that a religious wedding ceremony should be mm. separate to a legal ceremony. ceremony. Exactly. So you could say to them, go ahead, have as many religious marriage ceremonies as you like, yeah, but there's only one Legal uh, legally binding match. ceremony which yeah. we do as a government separately. That way, mm. your religious rights are not impinged. You can get as married as many times as you like. Exactly. We'll only recognise one of them. Mm. Your theory there holds up, Scott, under an example. Well, 
You said I it happens it in Italy? Is that, Sorry? Is that how it works in, you said it works in Italy like that? In, Italy, that like? in Italy, you get married um, You get married in an office. Hmm. And that's your legal wedding and that sort of stuff. Then you go ahead and you have your ceremony and that sort of thing at a church and that sort of thing when you've got your whole family there and that type of thing. So mm. it is it is completely separated, which mm. I don't have a problem with. And um, I think it's the way forward. It really is, you know, because that way you could then argue that the marriage act, it only relates to legal ceremonies. Mm. I then, like the idea of divorcing clergy from any any official government position which essentially is what they have when they exactly. are able yeah. to legally marry somebody hmm. put that on the agenda in an um now um <laughs> scott uh did i tell did i send you the one about the uh the teenager avoids jail for sex attacks due to cultural... Yeah, this one came from James. Thank you, James. We've had some good um, input yeah, from cultural differences. From listeners. Thank you, dear listeners. So we've got a teenager who immigrated to Australia from Afghanistan mm. has escaped jail after a series of sex attacks because he grew up in a different culture. The court heard the teenager, who cannot be named, pleaded guilty to assaulting eight women and girls... The judge accepted that seeing girls in bikinis is different uh, to the environment in which he grew up, and he's now on two years probation with no conviction. What do you think of that, Scott? I think it stinks. (laughs) I think that... um when you come to Australia, you have got to accept that there are women who are going to be going to the beach and they're going to be dressed in bikinis and that sort of stuff and they're going to be scantily clad and you have to control your hormones and not allow your hands and that sort of stuff to assault them. And I do think that the court has uh, made a mistake. You know, it's it's... One of those things, I mean, like, how long was he in the country before he went to the beach for the first time? You know, was he in the, was he, was this the first time he went to the beach and couldn't control himself or what? You know, that that's just, it's, it really is a repugnant thing that the court has ruled. It's absolutely disgraceful. I'm, yes. I'm in, I'm in danger of losing my Iron Fist moniker here, Scott. <laughs> Because I actually have, I actually have some sympathy in the situation, and I'm uncomfortable with it, dear listener. Believe me. First of all, as well you should be uncomfortable. Bear with in it. mind, I'm operating under a handicap here. So you know, in a previous life, I was a criminal lawyer, and I did have to stand up in court on numerous occasions and say, "Well, go easy on this." guy or girl because of these mitigating circumstances and 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 they can be raised in sentencing recommendations and that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. i mean well, i'm pleased he can be, yeah. i'm pleased that he's he's pled guilty and that sort of stuff but you know he should have done six months see you've you've got to take people's <laughs> circumstances into account and here is the problem. This this is the danger of mixing different civilizations. So when you, this is one of the real dangers of of having large numbers of people who are completely different in civilized behaviour coming to this country, 
without with us not providing it seemingly any instruction on how to assimilate and behave in this society. I mean, it's quite yeah, and possible that is absolutely true. You are to, right there. I mean, the, the migrant camps and that sort of stuff in the fifties, they were there for more than just getting people off the street and that sort of stuff. They were there to teach people English. They were there to teach people social norms and that sort of thing. Yep. They had a function, and that that function is still required today, and if not more so required today. Mm. You know, it's, um, it's one of those things. I do think that uh, in the modern-day migrant camp, you should expose people to pictures of scantily clad girls at the beach and that sort of stuff and say if this offends you we recommend you don't go to the beach mm. see scott you know when we um say when we're dealing with juveniles and a juvenile commits a crime we would say well uh this child is not old enough to know better or to fully appreciate what they've done uh therefore you know they should receive a lesser sentence than a fully grown adult should. So that's a legitimate approach to sentencing. It I is, mean, yeah. we do that mm. every day of the week. You could argue that somebody who's come from Afghanistan, culturally, their maturity level could well be that of a child. It sounds awful to say. Like, I am fully sympathetic to... I wouldn't want my daughter or wife, you know, assaulted by this character. And, you know, it, things always feel different when you're in the room with the person and you know all the full stories about exactly what he did and what happened. But, you know, you don't let people off scot-free, obviously. But you kind of have to take the circumstances... soft. I, I have. I have. <laughs> Dear listener, help me out here. Like, I... <laughs> I want to be convinced that I'm completely stupid on this issue and that no consideration should be given at all. So write in, leave a voicemail, tell me I'm I idiot. don't can, know whether no can, consideration at all should be left, but I do think that he should have done some time inside. And I do think that six months or three months or something like that and then the rest of your sentence being suspended, that would have been fine. See, I don't know what the normal penalty was. Let's say, for example the normal penalty was not custodial and was, in fact, you know, three years um, suspended sentence and he got two years suspended or something like Well, that's no big deal. You know, it's just it's just a 12-month reduction of his yeah, suspended so, so, sentence. So, that's no big deal. So, so, yeah. So, before you abuse me too hard on the voicemail, I, I just want... <laughs> I want him to be punished, but I just want a slight reduction... Because I feel sorry for somebody who enters a world that is completely different from the world that they know and have been indoctrinated in, and and we've brought them in without any education as to how people are supposed to behave. Quite possibly, all those things. But anyway, I, I'm not comfortable with my position, but I'm open to anybody, you know providing a coherent argument as to why he should get exactly the same as anybody else. Uh, you've gone soft. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I have. I do, think that, I do think that some sort of custodial sentence would have been appropriate, <laughs> and I do think that six months or 12 months or something like that would have been okay. Well, look, if a normal custodial... If the normal thing for that was a custodial sentence, I agree. You know, if normally you get 12 months, well, give him 11 
or something. But just, mm. I think there is some consideration. Anyway, at the time of speaking, we have the following as our patrons, uh, Sean, Alex, Al, Janelle, Jason, Craig, John and Grant. Thank you so much. Perhaps after my recent comments, they'll all disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have no patrons left because I think I've gone soft, as you say. But... Um, that uh, last one from Grant, that is my yes. brother. So I don't want anyone to think that uh, my family are not contributing to the program. So. Well, my family's not, so... Uh. <laughs> well done. You've got one of your family members on board. Good on you, Grant. Welcome aboard. Uh, Scott, um, it's nice to deal with statistics rather than anecdotes. And we hear all the time about how... Australians are racist and Islamophobic. And if you, dear listener, are tired of that argument being levied against you as an Australian, then you've got an article here from The Conversation that you can refer to, um, which quotes a survey, which the conclusion... Oh, I won't get to the conclusion. Hang on a second. Um, See, we've had different polls along the, along the way. An essential poll um, said 49% of people surveyed were in favour of a ban against Muslims entering Australia. Um, the Pew research people have come to Australia and have done a study of how Islamophobic we are. And what they did was they asked seven questions of people and the questions were these just to be safe it is important to stay away from places where muslims could be uh, to all of these questions people had to say disagree strongly disagree undecided agree and strongly agree i would feel comfortable speaking with a muslim i would support any policy that will stop the building of a new mosque if i could i would avoid contact with muslims i would live in a place where there are muslims Muslims should be allowed to work in places where many Australians gather, such as, such as airports. If possible, I would avoid going to places where Muslims would be. So, sample a thousand Australians, tallied up their responses as to how strongly they agreed or disagreed with those statements, and came up with the answer that 70% of Australians have very low levels of Islamophobic attitude, 10% were undecided about how they truly felt. Sorry, 20% were undecided, and less than 10% fell into the highly Islamophobic category. All statistically laid out, Scott. Yeah, it is. There's not much you can say about it other than it's there, you know. It's, um, hmm. It is what it is. I mean, like, you know... It's got the photos of the protesters outside Bendigo when Bendigo was um, going for a new mosque, you know, and I don't understand the objection to mosques and that sort of stuff. They're, to me, they're no different to a church or anything like that. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, you do have people that do have objections to them. I don't understand why, as I've said, but it is... You know, you've got pictures of these people and that sort of stuff, and you think to yourself, oh, well, you, you're a bunch of racists and uh, Islamophobes down there. It's, uh, it is ridiculous. And then it's, then when it's all put into the... Um, like that, it's all broken up into statistics, it proves that we're not. Hmm. Uh, mm. 
Looking at subcategories, those from non-English speaking background were more likely, sorry, were more likely to be Islamophobic compared to those born in Australia and those from English speaking backgrounds. Capital city, non-capital city, gender and employment status had no effect. So there we go, statistically Australia not Islamophobic, only 10% could be. Still on statistics, in the UK, uh, they asked UK residents what they felt about immigration. And ironically, what they discovered was um, uh, 71% of all respondents were opposed to further immigration, a statistic which rises to 83% for only those who were born in the UK. Um, when we look at the position of immigrants, we found that overall, nearly 50% of immigrants were opposed to further immigration. That's ironic, Scott. Yeah, it is. It, it, it may seem ironic when you first read it, but then you, I'm reminded of a, mm, a thing that was said on radio a couple of years ago, probably five or six years ago now. I can't remember the exact quote but there was one person who was saying that uh, immigrants like to be the ones the last ones through the door like to be to slam it behind them <laughs> right and um, I think this has just been borne out in this is that you know you've got a large number of migrants who don't want any more immigration mm. yeah. so there's that another article Scott this one um, from Deep Throat yes um Dear listener, the number of articles this week from listeners. If you if you're listening to this program and you did not send us an article, you're, <laughs> you're potentially in a minority. Just get with the program and start communicating with your little community here. So, good on you, Deep Throat. This one is talking about investing and um, uh, various funds that have been created and. Uh, there's a UK-based investment group which made headlines with the launch of two so-called biblically responsible exchange-traded funds that seek to buy into companies with, with products and policies aligned to evangelical Christian values. So we've all heard of, you know, environmentally friendly uh, funds that, you know, and um, ethically responsible funds. So. Now we've got biblically responsible funds. So that's in the US. There's no exchange-traded funds like that in Australia, but there are some unlisted biblically responsible product providers here, uh, the largest of which would be the Catholic Super, which has $7 billion in funds. Um, obviously, these groups... Do not invest in companies that have products or services related to abortion, alcohol, or pornography. Um, uh, there's also, it's possible to get, um, if you don't want a fund that identifies with evangelical Christians, you can get funds that identify as Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, and other investment principles. Um, it could be good, it could be a wise decision, Scott. Last year, the global uh, S&P 500 Catholic Values Index was launched. And um, 
since its inception, it's achieved returns close to 15%. That's all right. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Going very well. Um, well, no one's ever said that the Catholic Church didn't know how to handle money. They've always exactly. buy stuff on top yeah. of the hill. Yeah. And yeah. Actually, that... Well, actually, prior to the First World War, their finances were in a complete mess. But that's another story. I digress. Um, on the flip side, Scott, you and I might think, well, where's the, where's the alternative to this? And for those wanting to explore the world of investment sinners, there is a fund for that too. <laughs> US investment group Motive has created a basket of stocks it calls... Seven Deadly Sins. Deadly Sins. Covering listed <laughs> alcohol, tobacco, sex, junk food and gambling stocks. <laughs> Only one problem, dear listener. It's been, it's, it's been underperforming the S&P 500 the S&P index 500. for some time. <laughs> it's okay, dear listener. Well, it's, it, it goes to show that you can't, you can't have all your eggs in one basket, can that, you? That's you know? exactly right. So, you know, you might want to support atheism and secularism, dear listener, but um, perhaps put your money with the Catholics rather than with the, uh, <laughs> with the Seven Deadly Sins Fund. Uh, Scott, I reckon that that's... I reckon that's probably enough. Unless you want to, you'd want to go through one. Is there a favourite in the remainder? No, there's nothing really that stands out there. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe understanding this masculinities thing that oh, you sent oh, me. Yes. Yep. Yeah. This was a survey Just of um, Egyptians, Lebanese, Palestinians, and well, people from Morocco, um, Moroccans. Mm. Go ahead, Scott. Um, just on that second one, the attitude towards marriage. Yes. I did find that rather amazing. A man should not marry a woman who has been previously engaged. 19.4% of men said yes. 24.3% of women said yes. Mm. I, I did find that ridiculous that you've got this... Um, that anyone would bother answering the question yes. You know, that's uh, that was the main thing that um, struck me as a little bit odd. Mm. Um, then it comes down to... I would approve of my daughter marrying a man who already has other wives. 9.5% of men said yes, 4.4% of women said yes. yes. So, you know, it, it seems to me that the uh, uh, polygamy and that sort of stuff is only acceptable provided it's not your daughter. Well, there's, there's a host of provocative questions here about mm. family violence and duties and uh, what, what people can and can't do. And the one that was the most unanimous was the one where it said, uh, I have no problem with marrying someone of a different religion. And, and that scored uh, only 2.3% of women agreed with that and only 6.6% of men agreed with that. Mm. So nearly all of them disagreed. They had big problems with someone marrying uh, someone of a different religion. Uh, meanwhile, on topics that you would think might be, uh, well, let's see here. Um, there are times when a woman deserves to be beaten. Do you agree with that? Um, 32% of women do and 53% of men do. Uh, a woman should tolerate violence to keep the family together. 70% of women agree. 90% of men agree. Um, 
A husband should not have friends of the opposite sex. 69% of women agree. 76% of men agree. Um, these, I mean, these are the attitudes of people who are who are coming here and then sitting on our beaches and seeing girls in bikinis and not knowing how to behave. It's, it's a wonder we don't get more cases than what we get. Well, I think it just... Um well, it's the need to have a migrant camp again. That's all. <laughs> how, just, how, just people have to assimilate. You know, if people are going to be in enclaves and and basically deal with people from their ethnic group, then they're just not going to learn about how exactly. to behave yeah. in this society. And, and that is that is the real problem that you've got. Mm. Um, you've got developers down in Victoria that are talking about having a Muslim only area and that sort of stuff. Right. That will be a recipe for disaster, mm. you know. Mm. It will be an absolute bloody nightmare if they do that. Mm. All right, Scott. Um, that's us Thank you very for much. another episode. Yep. We're, we're uh, rapidly honing in on 100. And, uh, we'll have to get together and do something special. Yes, I think so. I think Patreon, uh, Patreons may hear about something. Uh, we'll let them know directly. And uh, otherwise, Scott, um, talk to you next week. Yep. Cheers. Bye now. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners and that way look if we ended up getting more listeners and more money we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes provide some more content so it's up to you If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.